I want to invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9 will be our text this morning as we continue our study of Luke's Gospel. If you've been with us, you know that we are walking through this Gospel account of the life and ministry, the death and resurrection of Jesus, and uh, something we always need to be mindful of when we're reading through and studying through a gospel was that it's tempting for us to, to read through these events as if they happened over a period of a, a few days, a few weeks, a few months. But where we find ourselves now as we turn from chapter 8 to chapter 9 is we were we are somewhere around the, the end of the second year or the beginning of the third year of Jesus's earthly ministry. And so uh, things have moved along and during these times, uh, early on, probably in the first six months of that ministry, we see him calling the disciples, and from those disciples calling out the twelve, the apostles, and so now uh, these men have been following Jesus for somewhere around uh, a year and a half, and for the most part, they have been watching and learning and observing, and now as we come into this ninth chapter, uh, we will see them being sent out, specifically in today's passage, as Jesus has called them he will empower them, and he will send them. The theme that we'll find in chapter 9 is essentially the theme of the whole gospel. It is the theme of the question of who Jesus is. It is a question that will come up multiple times in this passage. And, and today, specifically, with that question, we're going to look at a more specific question of, of what is the kingdom that Jesus came to proclaim and sends us out to proclaim as he commissions this 12 to go out and to share the message of the kingdom. So we're going to look at verses 1 through 9 of Luke chapter 9, and out of reverence for God's word, if you're able to, I want to invite you to stand together as I read this passage for us. We stand because this is the holy word of God, preserved and handed down to us, and this is what God's word says. And he, Jesus, called the 12 together, and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, no bag, no, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. They departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed, because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John I have beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. If you would pray with me. Father, we gather today to consider the old, old story and the gospel of the kingdom that has been presented to us and proclaimed to us entrusted to us that we might in turn go and proclaim this kingdom to others. And there may be some here who have yet 
to receive the kingdom, who at this point are not going to inherit the kingdom, and we pray through the power of your Holy Spirit that that would change today, that their eyes would open to see the light of the gospel, that they would embrace the truth of the gospel, that they would repent and have faith. And for those of us who today gather as citizens of the kingdom, remind us, Lord, of this citizenship and what it means to, to live here in these days, in this place, as sojourners, as citizens of your kingdom. And yet, Lord, to, to bring glory to you in all that we do in these days. Help us to understand your word as we now study it, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The question I want us to consider today I put before you is the, the third point of your outline, but really it's the, the, the overarching question for our text today, and it's this. Do you want to be king, or do you want to be in the kingdom? Do you want to be the, the, the one in charge, calling the shots, having things your way, or is the desire of your heart to be a part of God's kingdom where Things are had his way, where, where he is ultimate, he is sovereign, he is the authority. Do you want to be king or do you want to be in the kingdom? That is a question that was posed to me some time ago as I listened to a sermon, and it's a question that's truly hovered with me since, and it's one that I believe applies very well to our text today, because here we have Jesus now commissioning and empowering those that had been called out to go and to proclaim the kingdom. And so it's important that we consider what that kingdom is and what it is that they are proclaiming and we are proclaiming because as we walk through Luke's gospel and continue to walk through it, we find there's, there's really two kingdom references that are prevalent in Luke's gospel. Uh, most often what is spoken of is the kingdom of God. Other gospel writers refer to this as the, the kingdom of heaven. This is the, the kingdom of Christ. This is the kingdom uh, that we, we live between the already and the not yet of. And I'll explain that a bit as we walk through this passage. But it is, it is God's kingdom. God is supreme. God rules. It is the kingdom that we first see mentioned in Luke's gospel in chapter 1 when Gabriel makes that pronouncement to Mary about this son that would be born, the Messiah, Jesus. And he says of him, he will reign over the house of Jacob forever in his kingdom, of his kingdom, there will be no end. It is an eternal kingdom over which Christ reigns. It is a kingdom that Luke references some 40 times in his gospel, most of which we've not gotten to yet. And so we'll be speaking much more of this kingdom. And it is in contrast to the other kingdom we see mentioned by Luke and the other gospel writers, the, the kingdom or the kingdoms of this world, those things which are the interest of this present and passing age, those things for which many are consumed, and that which we are called out of. And so the question then again for us is, do we want to rule and have authority and be sovereign over our lives in this present age? Do we want to be king? of our own lives, or has the Holy Spirit transformed our hearts in such a way that, that we long to serve our true king for all eternity? And so that's what we'll consider as we walk through this passage, because, friends, that, that's really the question before us every day. 
And that's why the Westminster Shorter Catechism begins with that very fundamental and important question. What is the chief end of man? Why are we here? What are we to do on a day-to-day basis? Fundamentally, what is God's calling on our life? And the answer to that question, very simply, is this. Our chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And that, that glorifying God, that enjoyment of Him forever, does not begin at the moment that we enter into a new heaven and a new earth. It begins at the moment of regeneration and redemption when we are saved. And so today, our fundamental aim and goal should be to glorify God in all that we do, wherever God might have us, whatever nation we might be in. We are to bring Him glory and to enjoy Him for all eternity. And we understand that better as we understand better the kingdom. And so that's what I want us to consider as we walk through this passage, where again, we see Jesus calling out the called. <laughs> these apostles who had been called out, these 12 had been called out from the many, and now he is going to not only call them, he is going to empower them and going to send them. And as he does, they're being sent to proclaim the kingdom. So our first question we'll look at then is this. Number one, well, what is the kingdom of God and how is it proclaimed? And if Luke's going to speak of this some 40 times, it's important for us to understand what he's speaking of. And so again, we see here, Luke begins this chapter by saying that Jesus, he calls the 12 together. He gives them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God. Three specific things we see. He calls them, he empowers them, and he sends them. And so we see the origin of this call at the moment that, that Jesus calls them to follow him. And we've seen a number of those specific interactions as we walk through Luke's gospel. He goes up to men fishing on a boat. He calls them to be fishers of men. They bow down and worship him. Each of us has a story that we just sang about loving to tell, a story of how Jesus called us to follow him. And here we have among those who are called to follow him so far in Luke's gospel account, we have those who are called out, these 12, these 12 apostles who we've spoken of already, they are commissioned then to go out and to spread the gospel of the kingdom, that the foundation of the New Testament church will be built on the testimony of these men, all but one, Judas, who will betray Jesus. And so now Jesus, these men have been learning from him following him, listening to him, and now he is empowering them. Luke tells us that he gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. These were, during this, this specific time in salvation history, these were, these were signs and proofs that this indeed was the Messiah. The Messiah had now come, one of the things that then God used to give testimony to Jesus as the Messiah was the display of his authority, this authority that Jesus himself says he has all authority in heaven and on earth. And with this authority, we see it specifically in such a way where he has authority over the demonic realm. He has authority over sicknesses and diseases. And then God uses miraculously this time in his ministry and this exercising and removing of these demons from people and this curing of diseases as a witness and a testimony that this indeed is the Messiah. And so now he empowers these men with this giftedness so that that testimony would then go forward in this age. That people might know they are indeed his delegates and his representatives. And, and so then he, he sent them out. 
And Mark tells us they went out two by two. And so you have six pairs that Jesus is now going to send out to proclaim the kingdom. And again, we come back to the question, what is the kingdom? And there are volumes written about what the kingdom is. There is much in God's word about what the kingdom is. As I've mentioned already, we're going to talk quite a bit about the kingdom as we study through Luke's gospel. And just this week, as I was preparing for this sermon, I, I listed out those 40 references, and I began to, to just consider what was being said in each of those references. And I had to kind of pull back a bit, because I thought, well, here's 40 sermons that don't need to be in one sermon, but I would encourage you to, to go through that exercise of just walking through Luke's gospel and writing down those references to the kingdom and just getting this big picture for what the kingdom is. And as you get that, that big picture, I think what we see in its simplest form is this. The kingdom of God refers to the authority of God to rule over his creation and to exercise his rule through his son, Jesus Christ. So what we see is that the kingdom of God is the authority of God to rule over his creation, and he exercises, he implements that authority through the kingdom rule of our Messiah, our Lord Jesus Christ, King Jesus. And so when Jesus speaks then of the kingdom, he is speaking about this kingdom rule, and it's a kingdom rule, as we've mentioned already, that, that is an already and a not yet. It's been inaugurated, it's not been fully realized. Knees have bowed, one day all knees will bow. And so we live between this already and this not yet, as we too are called to go and to proclaim the kingdom. That's why Jesus says of this kingdom in Luke 13, what is the kingdom of God like? To what shall I compare it? It's like a grain of a mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree. The birds of the air made nests in its branches, and he said again to them, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It's like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. Now, Jesus is essentially saying there that the kingdom at first may appear very small, very insignificant. I mean, you may look around the world today and in considering the kingdom of Christ and in the kingdoms of this world, it may seem like the kingdoms of the world are greater and more powerful and influential than the kingdom of God. And yet, Jesus says here, it may appear small, but it indeed does grow and one day will be fully realized. You see, the, the Pharisees and so many of the Jewish people in this day, when this was being proclaimed, they were expecting something very different when they thought about the kingdom of God. That they were expecting a, a national, a, a political rule and Messiah. And so they were expecting when God's kingdom came here on earth for it to be established in such a way that this was a national rule over God's people, the nation, and that it would be a powerful rule and a powerful display. But Jesus says very clearly in John 18, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. He says this to Pilate as he is tried and soon wrongly convicted and will then go to the cross. Jesus very clearly says that my kingdom is not what you were expecting my kingdom to be. If my kingdom were here and now, then my disciples would be a, a mob outside. They would storm this place now. You wouldn't be able to do what you want to do because I would rule here and now. But my kingdom, he says, 
is not of this world. So I says then in Luke 17, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And Jesus says, he is the kingdom. Ligon Duncan, I think, gives a helpful word then on how we're to understand this. He writes it this way. The kingdom does not refer to a territory that's protected by walls. It doesn't refer to an encastled city that's protected by bulwarks or barriers. The kingdom refers to the authority, again, the definition already gave, the authority to rule and to exercise that rule. It's dynamic. In other words, it's not referring to a protected territory that's a static entity that you can plot out on a map. It refers to the authority to rule and the exercise of that rule over the hearts and the lives of people. And so when Jesus here is speaking of his kingdom and the kingdom of going out, he's speaking of his authority to rule over hearts. And so when we talk of the kingdom today, we talk about this same thing. And this kingdom then takes priority over all other kingdoms. This nation and nationality takes priority over all other nations and nationalities. And so God's called us, wherever we may live on this planet, to, to be good citizens of those nations in which we live, but we have a greater citizenship in God's kingdom. These kingdoms will not last. That they will rise, they will fall. One day they will be no more. His kingdom will last and is eternal. Therefore, all that we do in this kingdom in these days, we do in light of what it means to be citizens of his kingdom. This kingdom that we inherit, that we receive, that we're adopted into. And so Jesus here tells the disciples they are called as members of this kingdom, empowered by the ruler over this kingdom to go and to proclaim this kingdom. And so how do people then come into it? Well, they come through this proclamation. That they come through hearing this word and responding to this word in repentance and faith. They come as, as they, like we, all of us, would have a testimony, a story of how they, they heard about the kingdom. That they, they turned from being king over their own kingdom. They entrusted their lives to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. So now they are called out to go out and to spread this message of the kingdom to others. And friends, we are called in the same way. <laughs> Just as Jesus called them to follow him, he calls us to follow him. Just as he empowered them, he empowers us. In fact, we read in the book of Acts, we've been empowered through the Holy Spirit to be his witness to our neighbors and to the nations, that we too are sent out. And our job is to proclaim, and to tell, to speak, to, to give testimony of the saving work of Christ. We, we sang... <laughs> that we love to tell the story. But do we love to tell the story? As evidenced by, do we tell the story? Because we have quite a story to tell, don't we? When you think about telling a story and giving testimony, you think about all the ways we see people tell stories and give testimony today. I was thinking of this just this week, as, as I, like many of you, saw whenever you turned on the news, Reports of, of Ocean Gate's Titan vessel, this, this small uh, submersible uh, that was tasked to go uh, deep 
the ocean floor uh, that people might be able to witness the ruins of the Titanic. If you followed this story, you knew there were minute-by-minute updates as they had lost communication with this vessel. There were experts speaking of of how much oxygen would still be on the vessel and and what it would take to rescue these individuals. There were some that speculated perhaps uh, this vessel had actually come up and was somewhere on the ocean surface. They just hadn't found it yet. There were others who speculated about all the things that could have happened. And then uh, there was the devastating news that not long after beginning its descent that this vessel had imploded and immediately uh, the five individuals on it went into eternity. If you imagine that story differently, if you imagine what it would have been had that vessel been rescued, had it been discovered just in time, had had it not imploded and some malfunction had taken place and and the air was running low and then just at that moment, the, the last possible minute, those five individuals had been rescued. Had that happened, it would have dominated news cycles. You would have seen on every station around the globe these five individuals, and and they would have testified. They would have told the story of how they were in a devastating situation. All hope had been lost, and then at that moment when they thought that they were going to perish, they were rescued. That they were about to run out of air, and then they were saved. Books would be written, news specials would be broadcast, perhaps even movies would be made, just as they are day after day, by rescue stories. We, we are drawn into rescue stories. We, we love to hear the stories of how people have been rescued. Friends, we have an even better story to tell, don't we? <laughs> we weren't a mile or two beneath the ocean surface about to run out of air and God saved us. We were, we were dead on the ocean floor. God's word says we, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Well, we had no hope. Well, we had no rescue team looking for us. That there, there were no vessels and radar seeking to save us. We, we lied there on the ocean floor dead. And God, in his grace towards us, he he reached down, he picked us up, he breathed life into us, he saved us, and he rescued us. And so we, we should love to tell this story. Because we have a wonderful story to tell, if indeed we have been rescued. And perhaps one of the reasons that so many of us may sing that we love to tell the story, but never actually tell the story, is because we're singing about a story that we don't know. And we're hearing about a story that we don't know. And so all of this to us today, it it lacks interest. It's not very compelling. It's, It's rather boring. Perhaps in part to poor preaching skills, but mostly in part to a dead, cold heart. Because, friends, you can hear very weak preaching and still be encouraged by the Word of God if you indeed believe in the Word of God. And you can hear the best preaching ever and have no interest if you have a cold, dead heart, a heart of unbelief. 
that heart needs to be rescued by the proclamation of the kingdom. And those of us who have been rescued need to go and to tell of this great sweet story that saved us. This is the kingdom and this is what it means to proclaim it. So why then do people still have cold dead hearts? Why then do people hear this message of the kingdom and refuse it? And we've been at this for a couple thousand years. We, we live in a day and age where with technology, we, we can broadcast the message of the kingdom all over the globe. And I am encouraged to tell you today that we are broadcasting the message of the kingdom around the globe. Each Lord's Day, as we gather and we pray and we give, those, those funds are being used to fund the proclamation of the gospel to the ends of the earth. Now more than ever, more people will hear the gospel today and tomorrow and the next day. That's a good thing. And yet so many there and here, upon hearing this good news, will reject and refuse this good news. Why? I mean, again, imagine that scenario, that Titan vessel and and there, in the midst of devastation, there's a message communicated. We are here to rescue you. We are here to save you. Imagine what it would be for someone to say, no, thank you. <laughs> I'll, I'll be fine on my own. You're almost out of air. There's no means by which you will be saved unless you respond to this call. And they say, well, no, we'll, we'll figure something out. Or, no, we think we got plenty of air left. Why would anybody reject rescue? Well, that brings us to the second question. Why do people reject then the kingdom of God? And notice here, as Jesus gives this commission to his apostles, this kingdom's being inaugurated, you're going to go out and proclaim it in the midst of sending them out and empowering them and telling them they're going to proclaim this good news, the good news they've seen Jesus proclaim, that the great things they've witnessed, think about what has happened recently in the presence of Jesus. I mean, this crazed demoniac who is living among the dead has been rescued and delivered and now himself has gone out and is proclaiming the good news. The disciples have witnessed, some of them firsthand, a dead person. Mourners gathered, a funeral being planned. And with the word of Jesus, that dead person come to life. And now Jesus is saying to them, I'm going to empower you to do these things. I'm going to empower you to go out and spread this message of the kingdom. And I'm specifically going to give you, the apostles, this empowerment that you too will have an authority over the demonic realm. And you too will have an authority over sickness and disease. And you can just imagine the wheels turning for these men who, not long before this, their hands were covered with fish guts. That they knew nothing of these things. And now they've witnessed Jesus doing them. And now Jesus said, you're going to go do this. And you can imagine Peter, James, and John's others, their, their minds racing about, oh my, what, what will this be like? And perhaps they're even thinking about a neighbor whose child has a disease. All hope has been lost. I can go and I can tell them the message of the kingdom and Jesus has given me this power that they might be raised. Maybe they're thinking of another crazed 
demoniac living in another tomb. And now Jesus is now giving them authority to go out to proclaim the good news, have power over that. But notice Jesus doesn't say here, and, and everybody's going to receive it. He actually says, verse 5, after giving them instructions about provisions and other things, he says, and wherever they do not receive. And in the midst of this commission and this call to go out and this commission where he says, you know, don't take this, you won't need this, trust in me, I'll provide, he says, and by the way, uh, a lot of them aren't going to receive you, so here's what you need to do when they don't. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. That this, to us, you know, we, we can, without knowing anything else, we can kind of understand what's being inferred here, but this isn't any sort of custom for us. You know, maybe you've got on your back porch uh, some brushes and bristles there, and, you know, wipe the mud off the boots, and leave the muck boots outside before you come in. You're, you're thinking of cleanliness. You want tracking all that things in your house, but, but here there was a, a message that goes deeper than that. It was customary for the Jewish people whenever they traveled through pagan territories that when they would enter into the promised land, they would literally shake the dust off their clothing and their feet. Symbolically to express, we, we don't want to bring that in here. That this is God's land of promise. We don't want to taint it with all that out there. So Jesus here, Matthew tells us, he, he is initially sending his apostles specifically to the lost sheep of Israel. The, the audience that would receive this initial message of the gospel, it would go first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. And I believe Jesus gives a very specific instruction here because that's the audience and that's who they're going to. That perhaps through the power of God, it might permeate their hearts to understand when they refuse this message of the kingdom and they see these apostles shaking the dust off their feet, that they might understand that they are not who they thought they were. That they're not the people of God, that they are actually the pagan nation because they have refused this message of the kingdom. That now they are the outsider. And they have refused to accept this free offer, this inheritance of the kingdom. That God might use that to permeate their hearts. And yet we know as we continue in the gospel accounts that still many would not repent, both Jew and Gentile. They would refuse and reject this message of the kingdom just as we see today. People refuse and reject this message of the kingdom. Why? Why reject it? Well, there are many answers, I believe, but I came across a list not long ago from uh, reading John Bunyan. I mentioned John Bunyan often, mostly in terms of children's progress, but he wrote other things. One work, Justification by an Imputed Righteousness. And in that work, he, he talked about this very thing. Why would anyone refuse the message of the kingdom? And I'll summarize for you six of the reasons he gives. One is because people don't believe they're sinners. I mean, we see that today, don't we? I mean, Bunyan wrote this in the 1600s, but we see it just as much today, don't we? 
we, we speak of sin and what do people say? Well, I'm, who are you to tell me? Nobody wants to acknowledge sin. Nobody wants to acknowledge they're wrong. They, they, they all go their own way. They live according to what pleases them and they demand to be accepted as I am right and I am good. And if they say it with enough emotion, we're to embrace that and trust that. If you care, if you love, you, you must be right. And they don't believe they're sinners. Not just a problem in Bunyan's day, it's prevalent in our day. Second, Bunyan says they don't believe that God is just and that he'll deal justly with sin. You look around our world today and you look around even the church today and so often what you see lacking is a, is a holy reverence and a fear of God. We, we speak of God in, in peer terms. We, we even speak in God of, of in lesser terms because we have elevated ourselves to God-like status. We're the authority. We're the king. No one tells me what to do. The only one I'll listen to who tells me what to do is the one who does and tells me what I want to do anyways. <laughs> we want to be on the throne. And so this idea that God is just and that somehow he will exercise his justice? I mean, our own hearts, we, we have a desire for justice as long as it's justice for others. That they've done what we perceive to be wrong, so we want justice for them. It angers us, it enrages us, it drives us. But we... We want to drive through the state trooper when he's not actually in the car and he just parked it on the side of the road to warn people. We don't want justice in our lives. And so, so many today, just as in Bunyan's Day, they don't believe that God is just. They don't believe he'll deal justice with sin. They, they, they look to God as kind of this sweet old supernatural grandpa who just says, oh, don't worry about it. Come on in. It's all good. Bunyan then said they don't see the beauty of Jesus Christ and they are blinded to the light of the gospel. You and I should be in awe today that Jesus would save us. We should hear the good news of the gospel and what it means that the light has shone into the darkness and it should bring us to our knees and humble us that God would save us. Because the gospel of Jesus, when rightly understood, it is beautiful and it is glorious and it is awe-inspiring. And when the beauty of Christ shines into the darkness, he makes all darkness light. And this should overwhelm us. But we just don't see it because God's word says we, we are blinded by the darkness of our sin. And so we don't respond. Number four, Bunyan says that they're they're filled with hearts of unbelief. You know, a fundamental way that we can pray for our unbelieving friends and family is, is that God would change their hearts from a heart of unbelief to a heart of belief. Because apart from God changing the heart, the heart will remain hard and cold to the gospel. By nature, our hearts are filled with unbelief, and this keeps us then from believing. Point five he said the fifth reason is 
because people refuse the grace of God and they live in rebellion against God. Each of us could give testimony in our own lives and in the lives of those we know of how they, they refuse God's grace, they refuse God's forgiveness, they want to live a life in rebellion, and we see this rebellion grow and come out in more and more ways as we look around the world today. That the people rebel against everything related to God and what God has ordained. In the beginning, God created man and woman. We'll rebel against that. He created them in a one-man, one-woman union. We'll rebel against that. He created them to live under his authority, and we rebel against that. Because by nature, we don't want an authority. We want to be the authority. Therefore, we refuse this offer that anyone else might be an authority, no matter how good it might seem. And then number six, they... They love and live for the approval of man. It's a good thing we've gotten past that one. <laughs> no, we haven't. Millions, billions of people today will do this and they will spend an inordinate amount of time watching how many likes, how many retweets, how many shares? So they'll put something out there on social media, not so much to put something out there on social media, but just to follow it and see how many people approve of me, how many people like me, how many people love me. And yet that has nothing to do with like and nothing to do with approval and nothing to do with love, and yet that's what so many live for. How entire careers are made that in our world today that's how fortunes are built. And at least we look at that and pride ourselves on our Nokia flip phone. And 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 well I don't even know what any of this is and I don't do that. People were living their lives for the approval of the world in Jesus' day with no technology. And you strip every bit of that away from us today, we'll find other ways to live for the approval of the world. Because it feeds the lost soul. And we desperately want to be approved of. The people who express the most that they don't care, they deeply care. And they're driven by it. Because God has placed within us this desire that rightly is only met. When the Father says to us, He's pleased in us. And He's pleased in us because of His Son. And that is what fulfills our soul ultimately. That is what brings glory. That is what we enjoy forever in the kingdom. But our foolish, rebellious hearts, we, we look to fill that with other things. And so there, there's so many reasons, but, but what Bunyan puts here, they're still relevant for our day. And for these and other reasons, we refuse the gospel. And yet, even knowing this, the apostles, they go. And so, you know, Jesus says to them, go out. People are going to refuse. Some will accept. And they, they go. Because what have they witnessed? They've already witnessed this in the life of their Messiah, their Lord. They've witnessed how people have refused Jesus firsthand. They know then they're going to be refused and rejected. But it's the gospel that's being rejected, the kingdom that's being rejected. 
And so verse 8, Luke tells us they departed and they went through the villages and they, they preached the good news and they healed everywhere. And we're called to do the same. And so, loved ones, be, be careful that you don't work yourself up into such a, an anxious bundle when it comes to telling people about the good news. When it comes to proclaiming the kingdom, well, what if they, what if they did, what if they said, well, then they're, and then we just tie ourselves up in knots. And realize that it's not your kingdom to build. It's God's kingdom. He does the building. It's a kingdom we receive, we inherit, but, but he is the one that bestows the kingdom. He is the one that spreads the kingdom. We're, we're just called to proclaim the kingdom. And with that, the, the opposite is realized as well. People can refuse the kingdom all day long, but they can't destroy it because God's kingdom will stand and God's kingdom will endure, and one day God's kingdom will be fully realized. And in between that already, not yet, we're called to go and to proclaim. And so again, in conclusion, number three, we come back to the question. Do you want to be king or do you want to be in the kingdom? And Luke here presents us in this narrative with what can seem like a, a historical side note, footnote just put in there, but I believe the, the placement of it is obviously spirit-inspired because as he sends them out to preach the kingdom, to proclaim the kingdom, he comes back to an earthly king. Here, the Tetrarch, who we have already looked at, we've already covered, we've talked quite a bit about this. This was the son of Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the one who ordered the slaughter of those young male children in hopes of wiping out the Messiah. Now his son, Herod the Tetrarch, would be even more wicked than he at this point in salvation history. He has essentially abandoned his own wife to fulfill a moral relationship he had with his brother's wife. He has married now his sister-in-law, and all types of wickedness has taken place. John the Baptist has spoken out about this wickedness, leading to his imprisonment, and then, as we see here, mentioned his beheading at the request of Herod's new wife. And Herod is perplexed. Because he, like so many in our world today, who see themselves as ultimate and supreme and as authority, that they think that they can just put out the light of the gospel. Here's a message proclaimed that does what? Calls him a sinner. <laughs> Calls him to embrace the truth of God, to turn from his sin. He says, well, I'll just quiet that message right now. And, and literally, off with his head, he, he beheads John the Baptist. And now he hears that this message is moving forward. This message is being proclaimed. And people are coming to him saying, well, you removed his head, but he's still out there. You know, some, the message of John the Baptist is going forward. He's, he's been brought back somehow, or, or Elijah of old, he's been brought back, or some other prophet's been brought back. And then as they're processing and talking about these things and, and sharing the stories of these things, he, he hears about Jesus the Messiah his father had sought to wipe him out like he had wiped John the Baptist out. And so now Herod wants to see Jesus. And least we think that this is a softened heart towards the gospel. It is not. It's a hardened heart that will fully be played out later in Luke's account and in the other gospel accounts as we see Jesus in his last days brought before Herod Antipas, Herod the Tetrarch. 
when he does not embrace the gospel or bow the knee to Jesus, he will mock him. And not long after that, he will be crucified because Herod wanted the king. They refused the king. And it's easy for us to look at that and say, well, how wicked of him. But friends, this is a mirror before us today that we might look to our own hearts and consider we, we might be more like Herod than we think we are. Because if we refuse to bow the knee, if we refuse to get off the throne, if we refuse to submit ourselves fully and completely to the authority of God and His Word and His Son, then, then that heart of Herod is coming out. And it could come out in all kinds of different ways. It, it could be a, a very religious self-righteousness can be a, a way in which we, we are passing judgment on others. We think we're on the right side of things, like so many did in Jesus' day. And yet what we see, the gospel witness before us, is the feet are being shaken because we aren't really part of the kingdom. This morning, do you believe that you are a sinner? Do you believe that God is just and he will deal justly with your sin. Do you see the beauty of Jesus Christ and the free offer of the kingdom that's before you? Can, can you see that light piercing through the darkness of your heart right now? Is God then transforming your heart of unbelief to belief? Are, are these questionings running through your mind, racing through your mind when you're just trying to get everything else out of your mind and you're considering perhaps for the first time your mortality and what's going to happen to you and, and are you in a right relationship with God? Are you ready to accept the grace of God and to turn from your rebellion against Him? To repent of your sin and to walk by faith and not by sight. To stop living for the approval of everyone else. And then to trust your life to the living God. Who loves you. Who demonstrated that love towards you and that his son Jesus Christ died for you. And who has put before you this free offer of the kingdom today. That if you will confess Christ as your Lord, your King, if you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you can come into the kingdom of God. If God is doing that work, then we invite you to respond to it. If you would stand together as I pray for us.